So uh, the one night this week, <laughs> we were getting the kids ready for bed, and I am in the bathroom with Braxton getting his teeth brushed and stuff. Christy is just down the hall uh, in Paisley's room doing the whole nighttime routine with her and getting her ready. And one of the things she always does is she sings her a song before going to sleep. And so I'm in the bathroom with Braxton, we're brushing teeth, and I hear it coming from Paisley's room, Christy singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And there's a pause, and she says, for the reliable eyewitness accounts, tell me so. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you weren't here last week, either that or you weren't paying attention, you didn't tune in online, um, I would encourage you to go back and you can check out last week's message uh, as well as this whole series and all of our other series on our website uh, and you'll discover what exactly I'm talking about and why some people laughed at that. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't quite have the same ring as for the Bible tells me so, but whatever. I'm just glad that somebody pays attention uh, whenever I'm preaching. And so like bonus points for, for Christy. If you see her, you can sing that to her. She's down with the kids because she's awesome. Um, but we're in this series called Who Needs God? This is part four, and we've been talking kind of about this question, like, who, who needs God anymore? Are we at a point in culture and society where, you know, we're, we're, do we really need God? Do we need faith? Do we need religion? Is this important or not? And, and the research kind of bears out that more and more people are, are less and less interested in faith, that more and more people want less and less to do with faith or religion. Um, specifically, there's this thing called the rise of the nuns. Uh, this is a much more prevalent uh, if you are in, in a younger generation, if you're my generation, you're a millennial, you're younger, or the generation behind us, Gen Z, that uh, this is this idea that when you take a survey or like some sort of demographic study and the, the ask, okay, you know, ethnicity and, and where do you live and your age group, and then there's like religious affiliation. Um, and there's just a rise in the amount of people that are clicking or selecting the one that says none. I'm not affiliated. I don't identify with any of the major faith traditions, and so researchers call this the rise of the nuns. People would say, I have no faith or religion. Uh, and, and this group of people, uh, it may be that these people are um, atheistic in their worldview, so it's just, I just believe in the natural world and just the natural things I see around me. Um, some may be more agnostic in terms of, I don't really know, I don't really care. I, I don't really think about it all that much. It just, it's out there somewhere. It's on the back burner of my mind. Uh, many actually are more in the category of like a self-directed spirituality. It's like, like um, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Let me pull a little bit from a bunch of different worldviews and faith traditions, and I'll kind of mash them together to make my own. But whatever it is, there's a migration away from uh, traditional uh, faith systems or the traditional religions, and specifically within our context, where we find ourselves in America, in our local communities, a migration away from Christianity. And I say that within our context because I, I think sometimes we don't re, uh, realize this, but if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe just a little bit of encouragement this morning, um, the church globally, like the church around the world, is blowing up. It's exploding. The message of Jesus is making major inroads all around the world, especially in the places where, um, where the church is most persecuted. Uh, where being a Christian will get you tortured or killed, and yet the message of Jesus is going out, uh, and we're seeing tons and tons of growth. But within our local context, in the world that we tend to live in, it seems like more and more people want less to do with the Christian faith. And, and we think that's a shame because so often so much of it has little to do with what we would actually call orthodox Christian belief or has little to do with the person of Jesus. And so what we're doing in this series is, is kind of saying, okay, what if we clear away some of that stuff and answer some, like maybe some of the objections and say, um, for those of you maybe who have walked away from faith, never been a part of faith, you're considering walking away, say, before you do that, 
let's see if we can clear away some of this other stuff. And if you come to a point where you say, you know what, I still don't buy it. I don't want to do the whole Jesus thing. At least you've made it for the right decision, not all of these other things that we've added on to the Christian faith. So we've been talking about that in this series. The first three weeks have really been kind of foundational, introductory. We're at the halfway point now, so the next three weeks, today and the next two, um, we're going to get a little bit more specific. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about the role of the Bible, hence Christie's little song to Paisley this week. We talked about the Bible, the role of the Bible within our faith, or spe- more specifically, what the, what the Bible is not, the role that it is not in our faith. Um, we, we talked about this idea that Christianity, the Christian faith, the church, the Jesus movement does not exist because of the Bible. It's the other way around, that we have a Bible because of the Christian faith and because of the church. In other words, like there wasn't a book of religious texts that we looked at one day and out of this book of religious texts sprang a religion and a whole bunch of people that follow uh, these religious texts. Actually, the, the Christian faith is based on an event. Something happened in history, the resurrection of Jesus. And that event spurred a movement that we call the church. And eventually that church wrote down the eyewitness accounts and they gathered them together and they brought them together into what we now call the Bible or specifically the New Testament. But the foundation of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus, an event in history that we believe has incredible eyewitness accuracy, something that happened and people saw it. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus then that we take Christianity seriously. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus that we believe he actually rose from the dead. That makes us take everything he said seriously. Like you, you realize Jesus claimed some insane things about himself, right? Like he taught some things that were just crazy, some things that made, made the, his first century audience go, uh, what? Like, excuse me? Like that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Jesus said some things that were borderline like blasphemous. The, the Jewish religious leaders were so mad at Jesus. They're like, you can't say that. You're like claiming to be God. Jesus said some things that were crazy. And the reason we take them seriously is not because he said them, but because he rose from the dead. Because if he said them and then just died, well, he's just another guy. But when he rose from the dead, everyone was like, oh, shoot, you really are who you claim to be. Um, We take Jesus seriously, as I said, because of the resurrection. It all mattered once he rose from the dead. So we take the, the claim seriously because he rose. Because he rose, Jesus proved himself to be trustworthy. He proved that he keeps his promises. So he claimed some things. He said, I'm going to back it up. He, he predicted his own death, which is easy to do. I can predict my own death and I will be 100% right. I'm going to die someday. But he also predicted his own resurrection and then pulled it off. And so we, he proved himself to be trustworthy. And so we can draw this line that says, if, if what Jesus said about himself proved to be trustworthy, then what he also said about God can prove to be trustworthy. We have Jesus, God the Son, and what he claimed about himself proved to be trustworthy. So therefore then, what he claimed about God the Father, we can trust that as well. And so we're going to look at that today, kind of taking week two. We talked about this idea of there's a whole bunch of kind of fake Christian gods that maybe we do need to walk away from. Gods that we don't find in the Christian faith, that we don't find in the New Testament. The, the idea of bodyguard God that doesn't ever let anything bad happen to people of faith. Or boyfriend God that's just completely built on a, an emotional experience with God. Or the guilt God that so many of us grow up with, that God is just perpetually mad at us. Or the God of the gaps that we just use to fill in all the unanswered questions we have about life. That we said, those are gods that we should reject. We talked about that in week two. And then last week we talked about, hey, this is built on Jesus and his resurrection. 
But today, I want to bring those two ideas together and say, how do we get a proper view of who God is? We get that view by looking at Jesus. And so the gospel writers documented some of what Jesus said and revealed about God. We've got these four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There there are these eyewitness accounts. Matthew actually was an eyewitness of Jesus, one of his first disciples. He wrote an account. Uh, Mark wasn't an eyewitness, but Mark got his account from Peter, who was an eyewitness in there with uh, Jesus, and writes down Peter's account. Luke uh, wasn't an original follower of Jesus, but he's like this historian that goes and researches things and talks to the eyewitnesses. He puts together an orderly account. And then John, who was an eyewitness, one of the closest friends of Jesus, puts together his account. And now while these are eyewitness accounts, they all read a little bit differently because they have a different agenda. Like they're doing, they're writing something that historically happened, but it's not just straight dry history as we think of a history textbook. They want to tell history, they want to tell what happened, but with a twist, with their perspective, in mind of who they're writing to and what goal they have. We're going to look at some things from John's gospel account. And he had a goal an agenda when he writes down his his account. And one of the big things that John wants his audience to see is that Jesus is the unique son of God. And so he writes his historical account of Jesus, but pointing to this idea that Jesus is the son of God. And so when you open up uh, the gospel of John, the first thing you read, John goes, big picture. He's like, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it's like, Okay, John, so you just like, we can see where we're going with this one. Luke writes his, and he's like, yeah, I've researched these things, most excellent Theophilus. And John is like, in the beginning, the word. So John's like, I want you to see that Jesus is the son of God. So he gives us his eyewitness testimony. And I just, I want you to have an idea of who's writing this. John, who, again, eyewitness, knew Jesus, friends with Jesus, but experienced pain and hardship in life that we can't even begin to imagine. Lost, all of his closest friends were, were killed for their faith. He himself had been tortured and imprisoned. He was exiled to this little island of of Patmos. And yet he's able to still come to the place and write these beautiful things. He says, I know my life has been awful, but I spent time with Jesus, and he's revealed something about God to me. So John was there when Jesus said the following words. He came to believe that Jesus was right on the money when he said it. So we're going to look at John chapter 14 to start things off today. Um, This is part of what's known as the farewell discourse. So Jesus, on the night... Uh, that he's going to be arrested, betrayed, uh, that he's going to be crucified. Like After the, the, they share this last meal together, John records Jesus giving this last bit of uh, some of its teaching and instruction, other part of its prayer. It's like Jesus, as he's got his closest friends there, he's like, these are the things that I just, I've got to tell you before I'm gone. And so in the midst of that farewell discourse, Jesus says this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He knew what was about to happen to him. He's going to be arrested and crucified, and, and all the disciples obviously were going to have a hard time with that. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. So he's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you don't prepare a place for somebody unless you plan on them being there at some point. So he's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but don't worry, I'm going to come back. You're going to be with me again. And then he says, you know, I'm going to this place, and you know the way to the place where I am going. And the disciples are like, what? We, have, we are so confused, we have no idea what you're talking about. And so Thomas, the one disciple, voices this and says to him, Lord, 
we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So you're going to the Father, that's what you said, you're going to the Father's house, but where exactly is that? How are we supposed to know the way to where you're going if you haven't told us where you're going? You can't know the way somewhere unless you know where you're going. So is your father's house like in the next town over? Do we have to go a couple days? Like where exactly are you going so that we will know the way? We're confused. Now there's this very famous verse, this line of Jesus that oftentimes we kind of just pull out and leave the rest of the context out. But Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so there's this question of how do we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus is like, you're thinking about this the wrong way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't come to the Father except through me. And so often we, we kind of take that to, to mean simply, you know, getting to heaven when you die, or do you know God, or are you going to the good place and not the bad place, eternal life. And that's a part of what is happening here, but it's much broader than that. When Jesus says that the only way to the Father is through me, it's so much bigger. It's the only way to, to have a knowledge of who God is, to know what God's heart is, to, to be connected to God and see who he is and what he wants for my life and, and, and how he cares about me and how he knows me. The only way to the Father and to the Father's heart, Jesus says, is through me. I am the avenue to which you have access to God the Father. The only way no one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, he's like, as a matter of fact, you, you do know him and you've seen him. If you know me, you know the Father. You, you know the Father. You've seen him. And they're like, no, we haven't. Like, we haven't. What are you talking about? And Philip says, and he's like, Lord, okay, you're confusing us like crazy. Just show us the Father and that'll be enough. Okay, can you just like, can you do like a Jesus zap us and make us fall asleep? We'll have a dream about the Father. Or can you like teleport us or do something, just show us the Father and that will be enough. We are so confused, Jesus. And again, that what Jesus says in these next couple of verses, this is one of those things where it's like, without the resurrection, like this, this doesn't matter, but because of the resurrection, this is like, whoa. Before the resurrection, what Jesus says here, it's insane. Like he can't claim this about himself. Like he just can't do that, Jesus. But when he rose from the dead, everyone's like, Oh, now we get it. Now we get it. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Philip asked to show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, don't you know me? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? And he's talking to a group of guys that had spent about three years with him. You, you want to know what God is like? You just reflect on these past three years. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And so Jesus says, look, even the very words that I'm speaking, they're not just my words. They're the Father's words. The work that I'm doing, it's not just my work. It's what God is doing. It's his work. And so Jesus gives this big idea. Do you, if you want to know what God says, Jesus says, listen to me. If you want to know what God is doing or what he's up to in the world, Jesus says, watch me. And then he says this to kind of wrap the idea up. He says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father 
and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He's like, basically, you can take my word for it. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he's like, well, I know that's, that's crazy and I know that's probably hard to believe, but you can at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He says, if you can't believe the words that I'm saying, believe what you're seeing. Believe the things that you've seen and experienced with me over the past three years. What Jesus communicates to the first disciples is the same thing that is true for us today, that Christian faith is not blind belief. It's drawing our conclusions based upon the evidence. We confuse like faith of like faith that versus faith in. Faith in scripture is the idea of faith in. It's trust in someone, not just I'm going to believe something for the sake of belief. And so Jesus says, look, look at the evidence and then put your trust in me. And then a few hours later, he would be arrested and crucified. And a few days after that would be the resurrection. And he would confirm exactly what the evidence was pointing to. He says, you can trust me. You can trust what I say. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. What did he do? What did he say? How did he live? How did he act? What did he do? And what did he say? And so for the next just couple of minutes, let's ask that question. If we could eliminate, if we could erase, if we could hit the reset button in our minds of all of the things maybe that we have been told about God or learned about God or we learned at church when we were a kid or a family member told us or some weird Christians on the internet told us or even something that we, we developed on our own. If we could say, let's just wipe the slate clean and say, what, what does Jesus reveal about God the Father? What would we learn? What does Jesus say about God? I think there's three things I want us to look at that we would discover from, from Jesus, that we would discover about God. The first thing is that God is spirit. God is spirit. There's a conversation that Jesus has with um, a woman. Uh, it's known as the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman. And they're having a, a bit of a conversation. It's almost kind of a, of a debate because Jesus is a Jewish man. She is a Samaritan woman. They have very different perspectives on life. They also have very different perspectives on faith, on religion, on the proper way to worship God. And so they're having a bit of a, of a debate, and they come to some different ideas of who God is. And there's all these cultural norms that are being broken uh, in this interaction that, that a Jewish man should not be talking to a Samaritan woman. It was a cultural no-no, and yet Jesus treats this woman with incredible, incredible compassion. And again, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And in the midst of this conversation, uh, she gets to a point where she's just like, well, you know, your people say you're supposed to worship in the temple. Our people worship on this mountain, so I don't really know what's going on. And, and Jesus' response basically is, it's neither one of those things. You're, you're thinking too small of God because God is spirit. And he says this, John 4, 24, he says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. God is spirit. This is an amazing statement from Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's, it's a Christian belief, a held Christian belief, but even before that, it was a Jewish belief. The ancient Jewish people believed this too. We, we can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus was Jewish. Uh, when we try to strip the Jewishness away from Jesus, we, we miss so much of the meaning uh, in Scripture. So there's this idea that God is spirit. Spirit meaning he is, he is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, that he sits above space, time, and matter. God is outside of those things. And the immaterial part is huge. This is why uh, in, in the Old Testament, God commands the Jewish people, hey, you don't have any idols. 
You don't make any idols or any, uh, any engraven images even to represent God himself. Like we, we just don't do that because God cannot be contained in a, a physical thing, a physically created like, oh, look, I have a statue. He says, no, 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 no idols because God is immaterial. He's, he's spirit. And this, is, this flew in the face of that culture. In the pagan culture, everybody had their idols that went in the little, in, in the little temple. You had household idols, you had uh, household gods, uh, national gods, regional gods, and every god had its idol and its idol in its temple in its proper place. And God says, not so with me, because God is spirit. And, and the cool thing about that is, is that as modern people, if we come to the conclusion that, I, you know, I believe in God, it wouldn't surprise us that God is spirit. That if there, if there is a God out there, of course he is spirit. Because just from the beginning of the beginning, which is hard, before space, time, and matter existed, there was a singularity. There was a starting point of everything. We, we can look at the universe and we can see that it's rapidly expanding outward. And so we can like hit rewind on that and it all comes back to a single point in time where everything came bursting forth. All space, time, matter, the laws of nature, the laws of physics. We call it the Big Bang. But we can take that back to a point. And prior to that, there was no space, there was no time, there was no matter. So whatever caused that initial event had to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, above and beyond the laws of nature and physics. And a held Christian belief is that there is an uncreated creator. There is a first cause, a necessary being at the beginning. Something spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. But Jesus just comes along and says, let me simplify that for you. God is spirit. It's not something that we can measure. He's beyond space, time, and matter. God is spirit. And that's great. That's a good, that's a good starting point. But if we stop at God is spirit, we don't really have a full picture of what God is really like. God is spirit might get us to like a deistic worldview that says, okay, there's a God that made everything, but maybe he was the kind of God that created everything and is like, I'm out, good luck. Um, you know, sometimes that's how God is portrayed a lot of times in like TV shows and movies. It's just like, good luck. Uh, I, if anybody watches uh, Supernatural, that's what the God did in the one like series there. He's like basically like, good luck, figure this out on your own. Me and my sister are piecing out and it's so not accurate, but whatever. It's, it's entertaining, but, but that might get us to that view, but it certainly doesn't get us to like a theistic worldview, especially not a Christian worldview that says, no, 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 God is, is not just out there distant, but he's personal, that he cares. And so Jesus reveals some other things about God to us. God is spirit, but the next thing we discover is God is father. God is father. Now, this idea or concept can be difficult for some of us. Because the truth is, our dads let us down. I'm a dad. I let my kids down all the time. And for some of us, like, it's a deep, painful um, hurt uh, and the tendency is to want to project that onto God. But God as Father, He is not a reflection of our earthly fathers, but the perfection of what a father is supposed to be. And so Jesus says, look, God is Father. The, the, uh, Jesus and His relationship with God and the way that He would pray... <laughs> His disciples noticed this, and it was just so different than the way they related to God. And so one day they just ask him, they're like, okay, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he gives them this example of a prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Luke records it this way that Jesus responds. He says to them, when you pray, say, Father, Father. God is Father. He, it does not mean God is a man. It does not mean that God is male, because remember, God is spirit. 
But Jesus wants to us to understand that God is personal. And in that time, in that culture, he's like, the best picture that I can give you, the best way I can help you to get your mind around the personal nature of God is to describe him as a father. The best, like the picture I can paint in your finite brains that are confined by space, time, and matter, for you to grasp a God who is spirit that is beyond space, time, and matter is to say, he's father. He is personal. And so when you pray, you pray, Father in heaven. Matthew records that prayer as well. Our Father in heaven. He goes on to say, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need. Forgive us from our sins. And Jesus goes through all of those things. But before he gets to any of that, he says the starting point for your communication with God, the starting point for how you relate to God is our Father. Before you get to, okay, our Father, you're holy. Yes, God is holy. But understand his holiness within the context of you're our Father. Understand his provision for you in the context of Father. His forgiveness for you in the context of Father. God is spirit and God is Father. It's like these perfect bookends. Because God is spirit. He's big, he's huge, he's immaterial, he's everywhere, you know. But at the same time, he's Father. He's personal. He's far away, but he's close. He's huge, but he's personal. And he wants to know and be known by you. God is spirit. God is Father. And then later... After the resurrection of Jesus, uh, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also writes a couple of letters to followers of Jesus in the first century as they're trying to navigate what does it look like to follow Jesus in first century Roman Empire. And he's reflecting on his time with Jesus, the, the, the years that he spent with him, everything he saw, everything he witnessed, what he experienced. And he writes what he learned about God from Jesus. And he writes a statement that is so astounding that it has literally changed the way human beings have thought about God ever since. And I'm going to read this statement. We're going to look at this verse. And, and to you, it may not seem that surprising. You're like, that's no big deal. That's just common knowledge. Everybody knows that. Everybody thinks that. But the reason we, we're not going to think it's such a big deal is because this idea has been imprinted on our culture so deeply by Christianity. And a lot of people hold to this idea and they don't even know where it came from. John reveals to us, or explains to us, that God is love. God is love. The, the Apostle John's view of God was completely transformed. It was completely rearranged by what he saw in Jesus. Now this is someone who knew God. John was a Jewish man. He grew up knowing the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament was his Jewish scriptures. He believed in God. He knew God as spirit. He knew that God was the creator and above and beyond space, time, and matter. He understood that. He would have had an idea of the, the, the fatherness of God that throughout the Old Testament, uh, the nation of Israel is oftentimes referred to as, as the son of God, the chief children of God. So John knew that, both of those ideas, but what he saw and experienced in Jesus completely flipped his brain around and changed everything for how he viewed God. And he came to this point where he said, God is love. John, again, who had experienced hardships that we cannot begin to imagine. Persecution, bloodshed, violence, his friends were killed, he experienced personal tragedy, and yet he comes to a place where he says, the one thing I want you to know is God is love. This is what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. He says, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. He's like, God has love for us, and it's like he, he thinks about it a second. He's like, no, 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 it's even more than that. He says, God is love. God is love. 
Whoever lives in love, that kind of love of God. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. John says God is love. It's not, not just that God loves, although he does. It's more than that. It's the essence, it's the nature of who he is, that God is love. God could not be loving even, he could not not be loving even if he tried. I don't know if I said that right. Like God, God because of it's who he is, he can't go against his nature. God is love. Which is an amazing thing to think about because when you combine these things together and we say God is spirit, he's like the immaterial, spaceless, timeless, the be- like the beginning before the beginning. He has no beginning because he's beyond time, which we can't get our heads around. But like, so but w- what has always pre-existed, God has always been, and God is love, so love has pre-existed the universe. Before the universe began, there was love. And everything in the universe flows out of the love of God. That is a distinctly Christian idea. None of, the, none of the pagan religions of the time of Jesus or John in the first century, nobody would have thought, you know, these gods are love. They would have thought, well, these gods are vindictive. These gods are, you know, egocentric. These, these gods like to toy with humanity. These gods created humanity according to their mythologies, basically to be slaves. Nobody would have thought, hey, the gods, the, the Greco-Roman gods, they are love. Nobody thought that. Even in our modern uh, worldviews and religions and faith traditions, modern religions don't claim that God is love. It's a uniquely Christian idea. And again, the reason why so many in our culture just automatically go, yeah, of course, I believe that God is love, is because of the impact and influence of Christianity on Western culture. God is love. That love pre-existed everything in the universe. Now, if you're tracking with me and you're running through some things in your head, one of the natural next questions or one of the next responses is, okay, if God is love, if God is so loving, then why is there evil in the world? What do we do about pain and suffering? How do we reconcile a good and loving God with a broken, evil, fallen world? What do we do about that? I'm not going to answer that question this week because that's where we're going next week. So I want to encourage you. Come back next week, tune in next week, and we'll dive in a little bit more. But for now, suffice to say that that John, who's writing this, who experienced more evil, more pain and suffering, more personal loss and tragedy than we can imagine, watching his friends die because of their faith, because of their faith in this God who he claims is love. God said, I've been with a man, or John said, I've been with a man who introduced us to the Father, and the best way I could put it, the best, the best way that I can phrase this for us to understand is that God is love. God is love. And so through Jesus, through his, his example, through his life, and through his teaching, we discover that God is spirit. God is spirit. He's, again, he's beyond space, time, matter. He's, he's immaterial. He, he, he's big. He's huge. But at the same time, God is father. He's father. He's personal. He wants to know you and to be known by you. He wants a relationship with us. And what sits above and beyond all of that is this idea that God is love. That God is love, that Jesus put the exclamation point on that. That that, that God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus Christ and gave his life on the cross for you for me, for the sins of the world, because he is love, he had to. 
to make a way for us to get back to him. That's the display of his love. God is spirit, God is father, and God is love. If we want to know what God is like, if you're sitting here asking the question, I just want to know who God is, I just want to know who God is, how can I be sure who he is and if he's good and what he has? If you want to know what God is like, look to the person of Jesus. Look to the person of Jesus. He is the embodiment, the perfect picture of God. Jesus is our most reliable source. And so as we close things out today, I'm going to leave you with a homework assignment. I want to encourage you, challenge you, invite you to read the Gospel of John this week. Gospel of John is John, again, wants to portray Jesus as the unique Son of God. Read through the Gospel of John this week, and as you do that, ask the question, what do I learn about the Father from the Son? So read through John's account of the life of Jesus. What do I learn about God the Father from God the Son? What, what, What does Jesus reveal about God? It won't take you that long to do. Um, John's gospel is like 21 chapters long. It's not crazy long. If you read 10 minutes each day this week, you'll get through the gospel of John. And ask that question, what, does, what do I learn about the Father from the Son? Because that is where we get the best picture of God. It's in the person of Jesus. And in him you see a God who wants to know you, who has gone through incredible lengths for that to be a reality. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come before you the posture of your children. That you want to know us and be known by us. That that you want to know us in a deep, personal, and intimate way, God. That that you have made that a possibility by sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like or what your character is or what your heart is, God. that, That you have shown it through Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have walked this earth. You stepped into history. You showed us what it is to truly be human, how to to live a life loving God and loving other people. We thank you that your love was put on display on the cross so that we may know you, that our sins can be forgiven, that we may be brought into right relationship with you, that we may be called your children and citizens of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, you would fill us with your spirit that every moment we would be reminded of the love that you have for us, that your spirit would empower us to live as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.